0: You're listening to a Milky Podcast. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land of which we operate, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And with respect to where our collaborators, guests and listeners are, we extend our acknowledgement to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders, past and present. Hello, my name is Patrick Hayes and this is Producers in Conversation. This podcast is all about a space for producers to discuss, share triumphs, experiences and difficulties as we explore the ever-elusive question, what is a producer anyway? I've been in this industry for about 10 years now and I'm still not sure I know the answer. This episode I'm joined by Kush from Nostalgic Events and one of the co-founders of Ross: The Rise of South Sudan. Today we discuss being the natural organiser in your life and how that can impact your producing and also personal life. Looking at boundaries, mental health, fatigue, and also, as we've been doing in all the episodes, talking around producing skills. Kush, would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners before we begin?
1: Sure. Um, I always find this part so tricky. Like hard, it's hard to talk about yourself. Well, my pronouns that I go by are she, her. My name is Kush for short, but my full name is Kushyang. I am, I was born in Australia, in on Bonurong country in Melbourne, and my parents came from South Sudan, so I'm first generation um, Australian here. And yeah, basically, I've lived in the southeast my whole life, and I think that's relevant for this conversation, because my producing practice has, it's like, centred where I live in the southeast, and I think, yeah, in the suburbs, which is interesting in itself. And yeah, so... Yeah. So what do I do? I, first and foremost, consider myself an artist and a creative. I suppose for the purposes of clarity, I generally go by an independent producer, which is still not that clear because like people are still like, what's that?
0: (laughs) That's kind of the whole reason for the podcast. That's what we're here for. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So what's that, what's that been for me? I started an events company when I was 17, 18 um, years old and that was called nostalgic events. And I started off like doing personal occasions, birthday parties, for, like family and friends, um, things like that. And then, and I just, and I started it because I wanted to, I saw myself as being somebody that like would work for myself. And so, yeah, I started around 17, 18, and I was like, well, what am I actually good at? And I was the kind of person, and I am the kind of person that just like put things together. So if it's, like, a family birthday or a Christmas dinner, like, I'm the one that's, like, arranging everybody, inviting everybody, here's what we're going to eat, all that. (laughs) So it started off on personal occasions, but I found that it wasn't all that it cracked up to be. And then an opportunity presented itself, though, where um, my dad went to Africa, I think, in, like, 2015, 2016, and he came back and he was just telling me about what, he saw there, and he is he was a social he, he's a social worker by um well he was a social worker, so he's very much into that like, community development and just working with our community and so when he went back home, he was very taken aback by the situation back home with um maternal health care and children health care hmm. so he went back to Gambella, which is in Ethiopia which is Um, which has a lot of South Sudanese refugees that have left the country. So there's a big diaspora there and I have a lot of family there. So he was there and he was just telling me like really, you know, it's one of those things where it was like, I can't believe people are going through this. You know, he was like telling me about how women are giving birth and just how dire the situation is. And like, it was like one of these things for me where I was like, they don't even have that, you know, and I'll, by the way, I've never been back to Africa. Well, I've never been to Africa. I really want to go, so I do feel a little bit removed. But long story short, he came and t- was telling me all this stuff and he said he wanted to do something about it. And he came with this. And my dad's an amazing guy. He's like this big picture kind of guy, very much an idealist. And he's de- I think he's definitely, like, imparted some of that with me. So he was like, I want to build a hospital. And I was like, all right, cool, you know. He wants to build a maternal health care clinic. And he was like, well, how can you help? And like I said, I was like 17, 18, maybe 19 at the time. And obviously I didn't know anything about building a hospital, but I'd been doing this events thing for a while. And I reached out to my best friend and I was like, so dad's told me this. He wants to do something. Why don't we have a concert? Um, Like a benefit concert. So we did that. Took a while to get up. We were young and naive, to be honest. (laughs) We didn't actually raise anything. But I think that was like the catalyst that sparked my whole career as far as like getting into the arts and producing because I had this skill set in events and putting on this concert I reached out to a lot of other South Sudanese artists people were moved by the cause which is obviously to build this hospital and so I just met a lot of people and after we put on the first concert artists started reaching out to me like can you help me put on this concert can you help me with this can you help me with that and yeah so that's the start of it and the rest is pretty much history, but that's how I started off. And yeah. so, I guess, what do I do? I work with artists to help them bring their visions to life and also creating opportunities for them to bring their art to the world.
0: Yeah, that's a really, really beautiful start to a producing journey. And I think any, like, I've done a few, uh, really like benefit kind of focused events, and mm-hmm. that is one of the biggest cruxes of, um, those events is you put in a lot of effort and then you're like, this actually didn't generate that much income, which is very sad. But I still think that kind of the sense of building that message, building the community, and it also has done on such a great level of platforming your own career. That's an amazing Mm -hmm. takeaway from that. I was reading your like bio online Mm -hmm. and you call yourself a creative alchemist, I think. Is that the words that you like to use as well? Which I think is a really also like a brilliant encapsulate kind of just exactly what you went and spoke through this kind of creative meets bubbling gathering creating transforming it's it's amazing
1: and you know i called like i i wrote that down and like of like being a creative alchemist because to me it was like and i don't even know if i actually understand what alchemy is but from my understanding of alchemy it's this thing that you have something invaluable or seemingly invaluable that turns into gold and I just felt like that's what we're doing with our practice especially in the early days like we had no resources barely any money no connections no networks and yet we somehow managed to like create these amazing experiences and like my whole thing that I've always said and like anything that I do it's just always about having a good time hey um, like yeah. in the process for like us as a team that are putting it together, but then of course for the audience. So to me, that's the gold. So that's why I call myself a creative alchemist. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I think that's a great. It's a great way. I've got a lot more. I guess alchemy. Um I'm a massive geek in my spare time outside of mm-hmm. arts producing. So I've got a lot of association with the word alchemist. But okay. I still think it's an amazing.
1: Yeah, like I connection. said, I don't know if I actually know what it means, but
0: <laughs> look, I. Yeah, it's a whole different other podcast where I'm probably divulging that stuff, but that kind of fits in this sense. Like, alchemy sits in this space of, um, yeah, it's that transformation. It's creating something, like, you take something and you change it into something else, all of those kind of points. But yeah, I think that's (laughs) kind of what producers do. We have all those elements that we bring together, and then at the end, we have a product and that kind of, like, yeah, and that journey. Which, I mean, kind of goes into that first question, because, like, my first question of the, like, conversation structure that we have is, what is your definition of a producer? So, would that be, like, how you define what a producer is, someone who can take these elements and transform them?
1: This is the question that we're all asking ourselves.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) We're not going to walk away with a definite answer and we go, (laughs) tick, we're done, but...
1: So yeah. that was, like, my initial definition of it. Um, but I have, like, the more I talk to people, people like you, other colleagues and stuff, like, and learn about what they define producing as, like, there's, so there's, like, other definitions that I think really stick with me. And one of, I think, I can't remember who told me this, but um, she said that producing is creating the context for a work to happen. So that really resonates with me, and I think that's definitely what I do. Um as in, yeah, you know, so there's that the first part is obviously you have all these elements pretty transforming and creating something. But then also I find at least in my practice and with the people that I'm working with and the artists that I'm working with, so much of about is so much of it is about creating the context for it to happen. So it's being that person in the middle that connects the dots, makes the conversations happen, and yeah, make creates context. So whether it's you have this piece of work or you're working with this artist that has this work, you've got to find where does this work, where can this work live? That's mm. another definition I've heard as well, like finding a place for a work to live. Yeah, so there's lots of different definitions. Um, but those are like the three that stick with me. Alchemy, creating context, and where can a work live?
0: Yeah, I think in a similar way, I've always thought of us as like embolling the creative bumpers. So, like, the artwork will always navigate itself and you can't really always, you know, know exactly what's going to happen. But Mm -hmm. we're there to create, like, that um, structural framework that at at least hopefully we hit a pin at the end of the project rather than (laughs) getting a gutter ball. But, yeah, yeah, I think that's a really... I think those are great definitions. And it's, once again, as we've said, like, we change. Different projects require different producers. Mm -hmm. They require different things. So I think that's... That's a great point. We kind of covered why you became a producer with that amazing story of starting in that Benefit concert. But was that the moment you felt like be, you were a producer or was there a moment in your career where you finally went, I'm going to call myself an independent producer now?
1: Oh, there is like a defin- a definitive moment yeah. where
0: it happened. I'd love to hear it.
1: Yeah, so it's a story actually. So I've done Ross maybe once or twice and at the time, I'd recently moved to where I live now, which is in the city of Casey, out of southeast suburbs. And like I said, my dad was a social worker, but so was my mum. So they're the kind of people that were always tapped into like local government, community, local community organisations, blah, 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 stuff like that. So when we moved out here, um, we have this amazing facility, which was fairly new at the time, called Bunjil Place. Um, yep. And that's actually where our council is based, but it's also an amazing arts venue. It has a gallery, a library. A theater studio. Like it's, from my understanding, it's actually the only building in the country that's like it, where everything is just like in one place, including Mm -hmm. the council offices. So when we moved here, my parents were called into a meeting at council to, I think, by the arts department. Yeah, it would have been by the arts department. And, um, yeah, they were just going in to talk about some of the stuff they do and blah, blah, blah. But then my mom and dad were like, oh, with the person they met, they're like, oh, maybe you guys should talk to, like, our daughters. They're, like, more artists and stuff. Like, this is not what we're into. So then we met this guy from Council named Joel Evans, amazing person. He's actually in Western Australia now. And we started talking, and he invited me to go to this information session at Bunjil Place um, that was being hosted by TNA for the VP program. And it was like the first, yeah, it was the first time any program like this was going to happen. So I told Joel, like, yeah, I do this thing. It's called The Rise of South Sudan. Here's what we do, blah, 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 I've had it once. And he was immediately interested and was like, well, let's bring it to of Place. But in the meantime, go to this information session. I think you'd find it interesting. So I went and the representative that came from TNA was a program producer of Vip, the person who kind of like really made it happen in a lot of ways. Like she was a center. She was a producer. So... (laughs) Her name is Rani Promesti. She came to Bundra Place. I went to this information session and she was just talking about what VIPI is. You know, it's the, by the way, for people that don't know, VIPI is the Victorian Independent Producers Initiative. It's a program that was delivered by Theatre Network Australia, in case you don't know what TNA is, <laughs> and was funded by Creative Victoria. And basically what it did was it gave a cohort of independent producers funding to work on whatever they want to work on, two days a week for a year and on, on top of that there was obviously also like networking sessions and you really got to like work with this cohort of people so it was an amazing thing I went to this information session I was talking to Ronnie telling her what I do and I'm like oh well I don't really know if I'm a producer like I do this festival I've done it once here's what we're trying to do here's what I did budget this 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 this, and that and then Ronnie was like oh yeah like then you're a producer so uh, and she's like, you should definitely apply. So I did first round didn't get in second round got in. But that was actually the story, long winded story of how yeah. I realized I, how I like, yeah, I never even heard the word before.
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's kind of one of the um, through lines that I'm getting a lot from these conversations is that it often takes another person kind of mm. identifying those skills, because it isn't something that's, talked about and like the start of those journeys very much like we don't you know we all know what an actor is we all know what though like those roles are but no one necessarily knows what a producer is and even when we do as you said we're still kind of discovering what they mean and we're kind of this multifaceted person who has to fit into all these different roles for a different thing but yeah thank you for also catching all those acronyms i think it's really great to also flag those but the Vippi is a great that is a great initiative and I've seen many different names of amazing, like, up-and-comers, but also veteran producers also being supported in that in those realms. Like, it's it's an amazing resource there. You were talking about, like, the skills that you had in certain events that kind of identified you as a producer to Rani. So, like, what, what are the core skills that you think a producer should have or needs?
1: I think it's different, obviously, for everybody. But for me, I guess the kind of producer that I am is... I'm, so like I said, I, w- I work pretty closely with artists and even with the Rise of South Sudan, first of all, like I'm the producer and my best friend slash co-founder is the artistic director. And so our roles in that are pretty clear, right? So for me, the kind of producer I am is I'm the one that's like, I'm the kind of producer that's like, I have to make sure that like we're on time and that we have enough money. So the skills... <laughs> that are important to my practice, you know, very like practical things, <laughs> budgeting,
0: yeah, project
1: management, time management, being able to build ne- relationships and stuff like that. Like that's obviously the most important thing, having the capacity to network and things like that. Oh, I had something else. What was it? Oh, negotiation. That's what I was going to say too. Negotiation. So... When I'm So when I'm working with JD, who's my best friend, slash artist director of Ross, or any other artist, it's like they're the ones that come with, yeah, Julia or JD will tell me, like, all right, here's what I'm thinking. And like you said, it's almost like creating that structure around it, which is, okay, the structure is let's make sure that this fits within a budget, that we have the resources for it. And even before then, finding the resources for it. yeah. I don't know if I answered your question. I
0: think you did. I think it was um, a point because, like, also you mentioned at the st- like, way back at the start all 15 minutes ago, that you're the organiser of heart. Like, you're an okay. organiser with your family, friends. I, I'm also someone that fits in that specific role where I was, like, always that proactive person exactly. um, and really hated is a strong word but had a lot of anxiety when it was, like, the family tried to organise something and then no one would take the lead to be like, this is what's happening. But then I, I think I also, went. I this is a question that I haven't sent through. I just want to ask on a personal note, now that you do it in a career sense of working and kind of taking on those professional projects, do you get sometimes frustrated that you're still the organiser? Because I had this moment where I'm like, I do this for my job and now I'm also doing it and wrangling my family in all of my personal time and all those points. Do you ever have that moment of... <sighs> I'm using my skills all the time and I'd like a a day off.
1: That's a good question. I think I flip-flop between feeling frustrated and not feeling frustrated. Yeah, because I have chosen to do this for my work and I love it and I enjoy doing it. But then, yeah, sometimes it just feels like you're never switching off. So that gets exhausting. But at the same time, like, my family is my family, my life is my life, and... Things So, like, sometimes it's, you know, say, for example, earlier this year, there was a bunch of birthdays and all that kind of stuff. There was just a lot happening. People graduated university and stuff in my family. But at the same time, I was organising the Rise of South Sudan, which was supposed to happen in April. So it was like, usually I would be organising all the birthdays, but I didn't because I just didn't have the time or the capacity. So I was frustrated because it was like, really, like, if I don't have the time, like, it's just not going to happen. Um, but it hasn't. Good. And I mean, yeah, sometimes I feel frustrated by it, but at the same time, like it is what it is, you know, like if. Totally. all really have the time, I can't do it. And if nobody else really wants to step up, this is a personal question. You're right. Nobody else in the family wants to step up. Whatever.
0: <laughs> totally. And like, it, there's, there's no yeah. right answer.
1: Yeah. And I'm so personally, like in my family, we're all getting older. So like, The youngest in my, I have five or four siblings, there's five of us. The youngest is like 19 now. So I'm also dealing with, and I'm the oldest, so I'm also like dealing with letting my siblings take, like just dealing with the fact my siblings are adults now and I don't have to be as responsible. Yeah, like if it was, if I had, if one of my siblings was turning 16 years old and I didn't, Organize their sweet 16th I probably would have felt really bad but the fact that they're turning 19 is just kind of like whatever like you can do it yourself you're growing now so.
0: yeah no I think I I think that's something that I've also resonated with because like I used to be someone who got really annoyed sometimes when I stepped back due to busyness and then suddenly things wouldn't happen in in, in all, sorts, all sorts of ways and that's no shade on my family or friends or anything but it's just sometimes people are organizers and sometimes people are not organisers, and I think that's, um, I don't know, I just find it really interesting sometimes when it's that the organisers become the producers and then it's just like we now do it all the time and where do we get our space? But... won't mind if I
1: could add one more thing just to that?
0: Yeah, go for it. I think
1: what I also realised was, and you can, I'd love to hear your take on this, Mm. as the ones that organise and like, you know, you take a step back because you're working and stuff like that and you feel that frustration, I think I also realised that, It's not that the rest of my family doesn't care to do these things. Like, it's kind of like they enjoy it, but if it doesn't happen, they're okay. So, like, I was one that was like, this has to happen. Like, we need to do this. And the fact that it didn't happen was because nobody else was like, eh, well, they're just like, it's cool when you do it, you know. (laughs) But I I don't care if it doesn't happen.
0: One of my journeys, I think, that I kind of went on with it was I... Uh, and I'll be, try to be very brief, but like, I think yeah. I, it's pretty, a little bit naff, but that kind of like that idea of love languages for me exactly. was um, point. So yeah. for me, I was like a bit, I think organisers, I also kind of associate with this kind of like maternal uh, energy a little bit in my head for some reason, where yeah. I just like, that's where I fit in in my life. And that's where people often tell me I have a strong maternal energy, all those kind of points. But my dad, for instance, he's much more of an acts of service person Mm -hmm. i guess and that was my i used to get so angry with him because he could never just organize a thing or plan something but i then learned at about when i was 18 or so that as long as i asked him to do something he would do it like in an instant that was just his thing like i would go oh my fridge is breaking um and then he'd be around for three days trying to fix it like that was kind of his and i think that was a big switch for me where i was just like oh like just because people don't organise doesn't mean they don't care. It's just they have different priorities and different ways of showing affection, impaction and all that kind of stuff. So it kind of helped to not have those expectations as well, because I think when, when you're the organiser, and it happens with, as a producer and I've worked through it as a producer as well, there is this massive pressure, whether it's put on us or we just put it on ourselves, that we are the like the same way that we just had the kind of we are the structure to try to help give that context to a project, if a project's not working, it can be very easy to start blaming ourselves or saying that we're not doing a good enough job as a producer. And sometimes there are things out of our control. Sometimes things will always go wrong. But yeah, it's, it's one of those growth systems as well, where I think as you go along in that journey and grow up, as you said, like suddenly you realise some people are not, you know, when you have an artist that you might have just started working with versus an artist that you're working with for like six years... You're going to approach those relationships differently, similarly to like a 16-year-old sibling to a 21-year-old, like sibling, like where you're like, oh, you've got a bit more agency now and you're a human who can function. That's great. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of parallels in those kind of spaces. With, with, uh, with looking at the producer's skills, what is one thing that you struggle with as a producer and how do you manage that in your life? One thing? it could be multiple things like what like it's up to you is what? like what are the weakness like it's a kind of question that we had later down but you could also kind of like what is a weakness i guess of what you're producing because we all have them mine's like negotiating i'm not that great at that hardball uh negotiation that some producers seem to be absolutely amazing at i'm much more of a nice cuddly producer versus a hard and fast producer but so
1: i'm i would so. just to give a bit more context behind me and my career, um, I think, you know, before the pandemic happened, like things were kind of just like ticking along. Um, We're doing Ross. I was working with a few artists here and there. I honestly hadn't learnt, uh, but we hadn't done anything like big or not even big, but like even medium-sized budget because I hadn't actually had the time or like, this I didn't have the grant writing skills to be honest, or fundraising. So, and I wasn't in VIP yet as well. So that's also, that's actually something. So the first year of the pandemic, I was part of the VIP program, but I couldn't do anything. But I was at home, being like I couldn't do anything publicly. Like there was no outcomes. Yeah. so it was like a, it was a blessing in disguise because I was able to spend my time at home being paid to work on my producing practice and just spend like a solid year on career development but also working on like projects that would happen after this pandemic would be done or after things opened up again and it was also at that time where i learned how to like write grants and were pretty successful and stuff like that and yeah my name was getting out there a bit more like you said so i say that to say during the pandemic I saw this, like my things, like just so many opportunities came my way, which was weird because I worked in the performing arts and there was no performing arts happening, but there was just a lot of work coming my way and I felt the need to take it all on. So, you know, one thing that I struggle with to answer your question is, and that I'm learning right now, actually, how to, do, like recognising and trying to like learn about is how do I manage a workload <laughs> um, without burning myself out Part of it is also like a mental, I guess, trying to switch up my mental a little bit in that I, things will always come my way. Like I've, I think we all have this sometimes, it's hard not to have it in freelance work, the scarcity mindset. Like, you know, so many opportunities are coming up now. If I say yes to some and no to others, what if there's nothing down the line? Like I just better say yes to everything right now because who knows what's going to happen in six months. But it was, it's been really exhausting. And it really, well, it's been a rough time over the last, like, nine months, you know, because I just had too much on. So I'm learning about that. And then on top of that, I really struggle with having to maintain and manage all these relationships. Like, I have a pretty small circle in my life, or I don't talk to that many people (laughs) on a day to day. And so just the volume of communications that's coming through all the time was really draining. And I found myself a lot of the time just completely closing into myself. So those were two things I definitely struggle with and I'm trying to work and trying to like work through.
0: Yeah. I think you're taking steps because like, for any of those listeners who haven't emailed Kush, Kush has an amazing little, uh, like, out-of-office kind of response like that <laughs> limits days and says exactly what it should do, saying, I'll respond to your email in some time. Like, I, especially as someone who's working in a bit more of a freelancer environment of, like, certain days and not others, mm. I admi- like I do that as well. I work two jobs at the moment. Mm. And yeah, I don't know if this is going to be a helpful thing, but uh, it's a long journey with the learning how to battle that scarcity fear. Yeah, because I think a lot of everyone in the arts, as soon as you get into it, because the arts is a turbulent industry. Like it is yeah. a space yeah. where it is turbulent. A lot of uh, start, like a lot of emerging producers, artists, everyone. We get into that mindset where you have to say yes to absolutely mm-hmm. everything. Yeah, and. Not to toot my own horn, I've been very well, like very lucky. But also, I'm a good producer who has been um, employed for like seven years. I've been like doing it, just jumping from festival to festival, doing stuff. Like I've, I've proven that I can do the job. Yeah. But even when I was leaving one of my jobs due to a burnout because I had not stopped in seven years, I had literally just worked to the bone. I was struck with this immense fear of well, now I won't have anything and how will anyone find me employable and wow. all these things. And it's like, it just, it takes, it's different and everyone's different with their journey on that. But I mm-hmm. think that is something to really, it's a really important process to go through and to set those boundaries that you are setting and going, I'm going to work these days and not the like these days is when I'm not going to be doing all that stuff, which even I still, with two jobs, they kind of start to blend over each other yeah. constantly. And- Which is also a part of the arts. Like at the moment, like everyone's a part-time worker and kind of doing multiple jobs to do one full-time job. But, Mm -hmm. you know, two part-time jobs is kind of like just over a full-time job because you're always Mm -hmm. doing a little bit more on both. Like it's such a dance. And, yeah, I think it's uh, something that we all will ongoingly change, which I guess we are talking around the climate right now even in this kind of conversation so just to set um i do this in all the episodes just to kind of give an indicator we're we're about the first week of september in 2022 here i just say that because as the last two years have proven everything changes so quickly month to month there's always a new crisis or a new something has happened and i don't want some people going why aren't they talking about this major thing that happened because i (laughs) i literally said that in the first round of like three episodes that we did and Then I think like the next week, it was like monkeypox was suddenly this massive thing that was happening across the news. And I was like, okay, cool. This is Mm -hmm. what's happening. But yeah, you said like, obviously, you kind of had like a interesting time in that climate of having all these opportunities come to you in the pandemic. But how are you dealing with the current slightly, like, I know that we're not really out of the pandemic, this kind of like uh, revival period. How are you tackling it?
1: Well, I guess, big question. Um, I think going back to just what I was saying before, you Mm -hmm. know, feeling really exhausted and stuff like that. Me and JD, JD's, like I said, uh, artistic director of Ross, we'd made a decision that, like, after we did Ross in April, we were like, okay we're ready to do ROS every two years. Like this is, we were like, this is not sustainable and we can't do this every year. And on top of that, we also decided earlier this year that after June, we had like a few things that we had to roll out and deliver in in the first half of this year. And we're like, in the second half of this year, we're not going to like deliver anything. We're just going to focus on the next ROS, which is going to be 2024. And I obviously do my own like i was i work on other projects aside from the rise of south sudan and sorry can you ask the question again i'm losing my train of
0: thought no like i think basically just like how are you finding the current climate of the arts landscape so like i think the kind of things you were talking around is that kind of fatigue that we're all feeling which i think um resonates a lot across everyone. I feel like everyone I haven't spoken to an like an energetic arts worker in years. We're all this I, I like in the lockdown, I kept using this metaphor of talking about like it's that last 10 meters of a marathon where everyone is absolutely staggering. We're just like putting one foot in front of the other, but we're all just like, please let us get to the finish line. But it's also this weird point where That's, like, kind of coming to the end of this really intense time. But also, we're now starting another race, which is the revival point. And I think that's just this, um, it's a difficult space, which I think taking a step back and kind of allocating projects out a bit further, like, lots of festivals and events run biannually. And I think that's a great way of getting interest, being able to see, like, this is happening, you have, like, some time for lead-up conversations and finding funding, which often... When I used to work at Midsummer, it was a like year by year, like getting funding for that year, and yeah, it was very it's what we're doing for us.
1: And yeah. that works for a while, but JD and I were like, we're ready to actually expand. And it's hard to, yeah, it's really hard to grow a festival when you're working on a year by year funding kind of cycle it's... because you're just focusing on delivering the next one.
0: Um, it is so hard. In, I've worked in a lot of festivals over my time. And it's really one of the things that I've noted a lot of, because it's this idea of most jobs or projects you kind of, that are reoccurring, you do this idea of like, I'm coming in, I'm doing it, and then I'm going to leave something for the next person. Like that's yeah. kind of like legacy and cool. growth. But when you're doing year by year, it's almost like, oh, great, cool. I finished my event. I'm taking a breath. Oh, now I've got to do the wrap up. I've now got to do the acquittals. I'm now doing the funding application for the next year's one. I'm now programming the next year's, oh, and now the event's happening again. And it's just like, you've had no chance to change, grow, take that steps. So I think, yeah, I, it's a lot.
1: (laughs) Yeah. But to answer your question, just briefly, I think Mm. what my current feelings towards the climate at the moment in the sector is, yeah, like I basically said, we're just sitting and observing where well, I'm really exhausted by all the uncertainty of the last two years. And I just want to, like, take my time to see what's going to happen. And I will say I, I'm privileged to be able to do that, to be honest, because I have another job which means that I don't have to rely on my independent practice to, like, support me day by day. I also live at home with my parents and my family, so I don't worry about a lot of things like that. And I will say the business I work for is a family business, so I do have the flexibility. I just wanted to throw that in there because not everybody can just, like, sit back and be like, I'm going to do my project again in two years' time.
0: Totally. Um, yeah. I think that's, it's an important thing to remember. Sometimes people were like, especially in the pandemic, there was a lot of artists who were able to go, I'm not doing anything for two years or things, which is, I like, last two years, I kind of do like a clean slate for everyone. I'm like you, whatever you did to survive, you did the things that you had to do. But some people couldn't, didn't have choices that they had to do. So they, you know, they had to create something for online content. They left the scene. A lot of people moved out of Victoria, they moved to different places, like, it's, it's important to kind of recognize, but also, you know, everyone's feelings are valid. But it's I, I do understand that idea of going, I need to just set that up, And because I also at the moment, I work for RMIT, which is like a university, which does like a stable, you know, income. And I work for Milky, which is able to kind of work in that. So I'm very lucky to have those jobs that I can keep on going mm. and have ongoing income all those points it's yeah it's a it's an interesting time and i think i think you're right there is this kind of sitting back and observing right now oh because we've all done like the we've all done the like i think every producer has done that i've had to plan five versions of the same event exactly. and we're all just like i've i've done enough for now and i need to know what is happening when it's happening why it's happening The next questions we kind of do was about funding, which we've kind of touched on a little bit where you've talked around how you've sourced some funding. Just mainly I put this in there because I find that's the one issue that nearly every producer has in common is how do I fund my projects and get things to it? So what kind of funding do you do to fund your projects? Do you look at grants or do you get sponsorship? Where do you sit in your events?
1: So I think just... Touching back to the previous point, privilege comes into this as well. Yeah. Um, I never feel, I don't, I don't, especially now, um, during the pandemic, JD and I were like, we're not going to do things if we don't have the money for it. And we'll just wait till we have the money for it. <laughs> An example would be this idea for a podcast that we really wanted to do, but we didn't have the funds for it. And obviously, it doesn't cost much to get a podcast up and running, but we were also just like, we want to be at least paid for some of our time. Yeah. Um, so I say that to say the way that we fund our projects, we apply for grants. That's probably the bulk of the funding over the last two years. But we've been doing ROSS for a while. Before that, it was all self-funded. Um Self-funded, raising money with family and friends and the community. And when I say with the community, I mean the first, I want to, yeah, that's like really vague. The first ROSS. That we did. I put in some money. JD put some money. My dad's not for profit put in a couple hundred dollars as well and gave us the community hall that we had it in in Clayton Town Hall. So that was taken care of. And and the uh, they took care of AV and yeah AV equipment. And then we got our whole team together, which was all the artists and like the creative team. And we we called it hitting the streets or like hitting the pavement. But so mm-hmm. we went to places that had um, set a lot of South Sudanese businesses or South Sudanese-owned businesses, African-owned businesses actually in general. Um, yeah, and we just spoke to people. <laughs> we actually raised a couple hundred dollars like that, which was great. great. <laughs> and it helped. So that's how we raise money from the community. And we still do things like that. We visit church groups. We talk to community organisations and just see how they can support us. And then the other way that I fund it is through my job, you know, self-funded. And you hope that you make the money back on the back end plus a little bit of profit if you're lucky.
0: (laughs) If you're lucky. Sometimes we're not that lucky. Yeah, understand that in many ways. Yeah, I think it's always a difficult balance of those points. And it is a privileged situation, but I also think it is an important lesson sometimes to learn around the money and getting paid and... Sometimes, like I used to talk to artists a lot around not underselling or just trying to get like a project up necessarily. Cause it's like, even though they might not be full time jobs, they might be casual jobs or whatever for emerging artists. I used to say, like, you, you're giving up a day's worth of, you know, paid casual work to do this project. And you might make the decision to do it still, but you really need to think about. You know, are you are you actually even just paying, you're not just working for free, you're actually paying money because you're not getting that income from other sources and just being aware of it. And sometimes I've even, uh, like, I've had to shoot myself in the foot, really, and kind of say to artists, like, no, we shouldn't do this project because I can't pay you what you need to do it. And I know that we all just want to make art happen sometimes, and I get that, but I also want you to have rent and <laughs> food
1: to do that a fair few times and the biggest thing that I find is time um because I'm always like I said if we don't have the money for it we're not gonna I, I don't want to do it or well, I don't think we should do it but I it's it's a hard conversation to have with some artists so like um there were a few guys I was talking to earlier this year I think it was like right after Ross so probably like May and they're like yeah we have the, we want to do a show we want to like write off the momentum from Ross we want to, I was like, okay, when do you want to do it? July. It's like, uh, like this is that's really soon, you know. I'm like, we could do it, but like, here's what it's gonna mean. You're probably not gonna get paid. We're probably gonna fork out money to do this. Da 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 da. All that. Um, but they still wanted to do it, and I had to say, all right, but I, I like, I just don't feel comfortable with that, to be honest. I know that you guys wanna, you have work, you wanna share it, but at the same time, like. It's going to be very stressful for you. It's going to be very stressful for me. And like you said, they're going to be missing out on, because they were like, yeah, we're just we're willing to pay for it, you know, because they have other jobs. They're willing to fund it themselves. It's like, no, like, it's, I don't feel comfortable doing that stuff anymore. Like I used to because I had to at the start, but now I'm just not willing to do that for myself and also for the artists that I work with, even if they're willing to do it. Because I know what it feels like and I don't want to put anybody in that
0: position. I used to be like the absolute same. At the start of my career, I won't say what festival I was interning Mm -hmm. for, but I was an intern at a festival. I was meant to do 100 hours for like a university thing. And Mm -hmm. I ended up doing 300 hours of free labor just because Mm -hmm. I kept saying, yes, I learned a lot. Mm -hmm. I I wouldn't change that experience. But now as someone who has had to look after interns at festivals and stuff, Mm -hmm. I am horrified i'm always like oh my god why did no one stop me and go Mm -hmm. you need to go home this is too much work but i think and it's that kind of that organizer maternal energy of a producer i guess (laughs) where we we are that caregiver in that sense of going sometimes they're
1: the same thing
0: Um, we have to take that step back and go actually big picture mm -hmm. i need to see what's going to happen down the line and Yeah. yeah and
1: like i said before one of my definitions of producing is creating the context for a work to happen. Yeah. Know? And so what we're talking about is like a pretty unhealthy, precarious, toxic in some ways, kind of context. And it's like, do you really want to create a work in that context? And as you said, with that maternal energy, that caregiving that is inherent in a produce, like, or should be, I think, in my opinion, mm. um, you can't, sometimes you just can't do it.
0: I also like how, um, you, you do, the way that you said it was also very similar to how I do it, where it was like, mm-hmm. okay, well, here are all the options. Yeah. And this is not a great option. Mm-hmm. And then you're hoping for them to go, oh, okay, well, let's not do yeah. it. Um, and then they're like, oh, no, no, let's still do it. And you're like, it's okay, cool. you, it's your decision. And they're like, let's do it. I'm like, no, you chose wrong. That's not <laughs> what the decision was meant to be. But, yes, I do love that stepping process. I <laughs> to that. I,
1: yeah, I was fully expecting them to be like, oh, yeah, no, nah, like a not. No yeah <laughs> you're like not be.
0: <laughs> you yes, there's no wrong answer, but you did choose the wrong answer <laughs> somehow. Yeah. Oh, well, I guess like that kind of walks into like our conversation about like um this next question is like why do you think producers are important? which I to be honest, I think we kind of just discussed why one of the main reasons I think producers are important myself is that we are those guiding creatures. And I think the new wave of producers, which we are kind of more focused on that, positive mental health that Mm -hmm. real care for artists and ourselves is a big step forward not to to grudge the old guard of producers but Mm -hmm. I think there is a lot more of a vocal aspect to looking after ourselves and not just doing the show must go on mentality Mm -hmm. which has kind of been with us so why do you think producers are important to the landscape are there any other points you'd like to bring up
1: yeah because I've thought about this question a lot before and I think it's I think producers are important because not every, I don't think artists should have to do everything. And something that I've said to the artists, some of the artists that I work with is that I'm here because at least I think I'm here. Like the reason I think I'm here is because all you should really have to do is just like make the work and say what you want to say and so going back before it's like yeah I need to make sure that your work doesn't go in vain and also that your work is treated with you and your work are treated with care and dignity and so yeah that's why I think producers are important for the landscape it's those two or three things artists shouldn't have to do everything and a lot of them can't I know I know a handful of amazing self-producing artists and it's I think it's a rare thing to be able to be a self-producing artist because they just want to focus, like, on the work. <laughs> they don't want to have to negotiate. They don't want to have to. But you also, on top of that, can't hand over that responsibility to just anybody.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, or just you can't you can't even, like, and also the, uh, the producer also is often the, the mediator because it's also, like, that thing of, like, care and dignity. Like, you can't just hand your work over to the presenting body. You know, like, you, I think that producer plays that important role to make sure that you're getting the best deal, you're being treated with care, your work's being treated with dignity, and I think that's important.
0: Yeah, I've talked to a couple, um, and we'll be talking to more, I'm assuming, in the future, uh, self-producing artists who Mm -hmm. are amazing, often even the amazing ones are going, I wish I didn't have to do this because it is so mind-bending. And I could only imagine, like, being a producer is hard enough. Um, but also cre- for me, I've only ever been a producer. I haven't really been an artist. So I come from it at that point. I could not imagine having to go through the creative process while also being a producer and working the other way. I, I talked to Anna Piper-Scott, who's like a self-producing artist, comedian, and she was talking around kind of going how both sides suffer. She feels like her art suffers when she's a producer, having to produce her own work, but also her producing skills suffer when she's the artist involved. So, yeah, I think that's a that's a really important statement because I think there's only so much one person can do and I don't know how people's brains, like mine feels at capacity all the time at the moment and <laughs> I can only imagine in those more uh, conceptual spaces as well. Well, moving moving from the larger landscape more to back to like you as a producer, because there's not really, as you kind of said in your own journey, there's no, you know, ABC steps to becoming a producer. So these two last questions are more based around just a chance to celebrate successes, but also share and kind of connect and go, we all make mistakes. So what is the proudest moment for you of being a producer? Like what's the biggest success that you carry with you?
1: Uh, That was in 2017, no, 2018. Yeah, we planned to do it in 2017 but just could not get it up. So 2018 was when it actually happened. And that was definitely the proudest moment of my life or in my career. Yeah, I remember sitting in my car the next day and I was just – well, after the festival, I was the last one to leave the hall, locked it up and stuff like that. And then – The next day, I was just by myself. I didn't talk to anybody for, like, 24, 36 hours. Not even my best friend, like, the artistic director. And, yeah, parts of the office. I sat in the car and cried because I was, like, so happy and overwhelmed that it had actually happened.
0: Yeah. Yep. I... I understand that. I also think I've had those moments, I think it's made worse from being just like exhausted from doing an event and then suddenly you're just like, every emotion. (laughs) The first hit is always one of the most powerful, I think, when you've gone, yeah, I did that thing.
1: Yeah, we did it.
0: On the other side, uh, do you have any mistakes or anything that you would like to share or anything you're like, here's something that's a common pitfall that I wish I knew about while I was producing and didn't know about until it happened?
1: Um, can answer that first part of the question, but I don't know if it's like as relevant to the second part, but okay. this is something I've been dealing with a lot this year or the last 12 months actually, and it ties into this burnout thing. I think one of the biggest mistakes I've made is not communicating and just like falling off the grid. You know, we, we touched on it earlier talking about mental health and how we've a lot of us have been going through it over the last 24 months. But I really got to a point where, like, I just I just couldn't talk. To, not even, yeah, I couldn't talk to anybody and I didn't want to talk to anybody. And I was allowed to do that and I don't feel like I was wrong for doing that, but I do think it was a mistake the way I went about it because in hindsight, like, we're in September now and I think I could have, it would have been, better to take a solid two months off or three months off or even a month off. Cause that's probably what I needed. It's not even like the type of exhaustion where I was like, I need a weekend or a week or two weeks. Like it was a solid amount of time. And because I didn't do that, like I was getting lots of phone calls, didn't answer the calls, emails, building up. And like I said, it's okay to do that, but it does impact your professional relationships and the thing is about this sector, everybody, a lot of people are really loving and they get it, and so it sometimes feels like so people will, yeah, they'll 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 understand, but it's still a professional relationship, so it does it can damage your reputation in some ways. Like I felt, and I don't know if I imagined this, like maybe I'm over dramatizing it in my head or t- internalizing it too much, but I do think it's important. In this sector, like, your reputation is really important and I think you don't want to become, like, I felt that I was really flaky, you know, and, like, nobody wants to work with somebody that's flaky (laughs) and stuff like that. So the mistake was not talking to the people, not talking to people despite knowing that they'd understand and, two, not giving myself, like, the proper solid break that I needed, which meant reducing my workload or removing, like, the load completely.
0: Yeah, I think I've definitely been in those similar space, especially because we're in such an extroverted organisation, like, career path, I should say, like, more, Mm. as you said, like, sometimes it's communication overload and there's just so much stimulus and so much thinking and all those points. But I think, yeah, as much as it, like, although there might have been some kind of, frustration on communication parts, I think that's like a, an element, but also I've, I've learnt to kind of go, reputation's important, but I also need to remember that memory is short for a lot of people as well, where people move on, forgive, right. but it's also the fact that, you know, that was a hampering with your recovery process as well, because you were getting stressed about not responding to the calls that were happening yeah. on your phone and all of those points, and yeah, it's hard especially when you're first experiencing it, because you're not exactly sure how to say it. And this is kind of one of the reasons that this podcast is existing is because even if like three producers listen to it and go, oh, wow, other producers are having a rough time at the moment. Great. I'm not the only one. Yeah. Then I've, I've done what I wanted to do, because I think it's it's so hard that we don't have those spaces to share in that same kind of way. And you're right. A lot of people have experienced the same exact, like have gone through those points. And I can tell you that right now, even people who are not taking time off work. I've had people like when I'm pitching shows, sometimes I know that venues can't get back to me and they can't communicate anything to me. And I know that they feel bad, but instead Mm -hmm. of just telling me, oh, I can't pitch, I can't program your show or help fund the show, they just don't respond. And then suddenly it's like four or five months of me following up and harassing. And it, it can be so hard because it's, yeah, Then you, then you just start feeling crap because it's been three months and you don't know how to engage in those conversations again. And yeah, so I definitely empathize with going through that process. But I think I said, you're taking really great steps of like, even the out of office, just having one of those on whenever I've been like, I'm just not communicating or slow to communicate. I've learned to do it in, like when I was in busy times of work as well, I added that on and just said, look, sorry, I'm super busy right now. I might not get to your email in a couple of days. If it's urgent, please text. Like I just kind of set those expectations up of what I could deliver. And yeah, I am. Yeah, definitely. Not not a soloed experience, but I, it's a hard one regardless. The last, this kind of brings us to our last little question and it kind of fits in the same realm of going, if you could give one piece of advice to like a younger version of yourself, what would it be?
1: Yeah, I have an answer for this one off the dome. <laughs> Boundaries and that it's okay to have them, you know, um, and it ties exactly. It's almost like the flip side of like expectations. You know I think that it's yeah, the flip side of, of the inverse to me is almost like there are expectations, but you also have to have boundaries, and yeah, putting that automatic reply on my email was one of them, but also having boundaries also means you have to be very intentional with like what you're doing, just so you're so you're cognizant of when your boundaries are being crossed or when you're working within your boundaries so. I would I would tell my younger self, like, put up your boundaries and stick to them and don't feel bad about it. Because if you don't stick to your if you don't respect your own boundaries, nobody else will. And yeah, so that would definitely be the advice that I'd give to my younger self
0: honestly it's one of the hardest things to do in the arts yeah, well but it's one of the things that is like if you start it earlier i think it's going to be easier to do yeah <laughs> by the time where we're you know we're at our points we're doing it and it's like great i've now done so many years of work of trying to get there and now i'm putting in boundaries but if i could do it start doing those things earlier same thing with me and that kind of in like i look at it and i look at that internship and i literally was doing like 18 hour days and i'm like
1: I did Mm. not have any
0: boundaries and I wish I had started clocking it. But it took me like another five years after that to kind of go, oh, I need to put in work boundaries and Mm. create those structures. So, I think that is also a really good piece of advice to give on (laughs) and something that we need to carry on with us. Yeah, that kind of brings us to the end of our conversation. Now, what I'll do is, um, listeners, I'll get Kush's, uh, like, we'll do a little bio and stuff for like the little episode points and any links that you might want to share if you had any specific events or your own websites that you'd like to do. So if you're looking for um, Kush, you can find those points. But thank you so much for your time today, Kush. It's been such a wonderful conversation.
1: It's been very um, therapeutic for me. So thank you for, like, organising this podcast and inviting me to come on. You mentioned before that it's... Even if like two or three people like hear this, it'll be valuable. But even for me to just like say this stuff out loud has been very valuable to me. And yeah, thank you. And I'm looking. I hope I can meet you. I'm sure we'll meet in person one day. But absolutely, really cool. I don't. We've never been spoken real. Like this is the first <laughs> time I've ever heard your voice. This,
0: I know it's this really weird situation. And if if this gets <laughs> left in. <laughs> That's part of my amazing charm where I have, which I think is why Laura got me to do the interviews. But um, it has been lovely to have this chat. I'm just going to – listeners, I'll catch you next time. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. Milky is your go-to for getting your show to the stage. We run industry-leading courses and workshops for independent artists and producers covering everything you want to know about producing a show. Want to find out more? Head to our website milky.com.au. That's M I L K E.com.au.